One Week Season. OWS fam, DFS fam, Inner Circle fam, welcome to the week five edition of the Winter Circle podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. As always, throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed, and let's get started with what I think will be one of the most valuable podcasts we've done. Now, if you're listening to this on the One Week Season podcast feed, you're already aware of this, but we are making this Winter Circle podcast free this week. So it's not just available to Inner Circle members, it is available to anyone who wants to listen to it. So for those of you who are Inner Circle members, if you feel a little bit gypped by that, don't worry, because all of this, obviously, as you know, is information that we build upon over time. Hearing these things one time doesn't necessarily mean that you just automatically get it. But I wanted to put this podcast out there because, yes, Inner Circle is focused, the Inner Circle is where we focus on deeply on DFS training and preparing you to be the best DFS players that you can be. And there's a reason why all of these binks that we see in the bink bink channel on Discord every week, that so many of them come from Inner Circle members. It's because you guys have been listening to this content week in and week out for multiple years now. You're constantly being trained in what sharp DFS play looks like between this and the Slate podcast and the Oracle and the Scroll and, and all the other perks that you get in Inner Circle. But I wanted to put this out there so that those of you who aren't typically consuming content like this can have an opportunity to see what you might be missing as a DFS player and hopefully pick up some pieces. I know that say that you came into uh, say that you came into OWS in the early days when the subscription cost was lower and you were able to lock in that subscription cost for life. And maybe you can't justify the extra money for an inner circle membership or say that you are consuming the free content on OWS. And so uh, you're not able to listen to the inner circle content. You, you don't maybe have the bankroll to justify a, a subscription to a DFS site. If that's the case, I'm hoping that this podcast will help plant some seeds in your head that you're able to start seeing some things that you can do differently as a player and start taking strides forward as a player yourself. So what is this episode going to be? This episode, I am going to walk through why I'm going to walk through my player pool from week four. Week four is still somewhat fresh in our minds. I'm going to walk through why I built the way I built. I'm going to walk through some of the mistakes that I made and obviously some of the things that I did well also. What's interesting about this last week, well, actually, let me let me touch on this part first. So uh, last week or the week before in the Winter Circle podcast, we talked about the game, the, uh, the book, The Inner Game of Tennis. It's a book that Pete Carroll has made all of his players read going back to his USC days. It's about the inner game, the mental game of tennis. But it's also more deeply about the mental game of athletics as a whole. And then even beyond that, more deeply, it's about the mental side of life and how when we get to that rigid 
thinking state, we can miss so much of the fluidity that we need to be looking for. And we've talked in the past about how DFS is not just linear dots that we're connecting. DFS is something more nebulous where we're needing to be able to hold all the pieces of a particular slate, hold all the strategy components that we understand, maybe even pull in new strategy components we've never seen before and see the full three-dimensional picture of that slate and just understand how to build for it or how to attack it or what rosters look good for that particular slate. And as we get into this podcast, we look at some of my rosters from this last week that did well. We'll see kind of what I mean by the difference between this linear thought process where you're say, hand-building a single-entry roster, and you're thinking about, how do I maximize this roster, and how do I move around salary to get the best possible plays on this particular roster, versus the more fluid approach of, hey, this is a good roster on this particular weekend. This roster can win a tournament on this particular weekend, and putting that roster into play in, say, a single-entry contest. Uh, But as we talked about last week, one of the things that the inner game of tennis dives into is, well, the core thesis of it is something that we already know and that athletes talk about all the time. And we've talked about for years, which is that when an athlete is thinking, they are far likelier to make a mistake. But the inner game of tennis drills deeper on that and basically says that the way to learn something or the best way to learn something is to never introduce what the book calls self one, the thinking side, to never introduce self one to the equation. So in other words, you're not necessarily learning how to play tennis by getting verbal instructions and then trying to push those verbal instructions through your mind into your body and getting your body to follow those verbal instructions. Instead, the best way to learn tennis is to watch somebody play good tennis and to take good tennis strokes yourself and see what that feels like and to be able to replicate that stroke in and stroke out. Is it called a stroke in tennis? I don't know, but um, a swing in and swing out anyhow. Uh, So uh, against that backdrop, again, it's one thing to talk about DFS. It's another thing to see somebody playing DFS, to see somebody making mistakes, to see somebody doing things well. And so this podcast, obviously we do this a lot in the Winter Circle podcast. We talk through the slate behind us. We talk through the slate ahead of us. And in the context of talking through the slate ahead of us, I know uh, those of you who have been in Inner Circle for multiple years, many of you, your favorite shows each year are the ones where we take an early look ahead at the next week's slate. And it's not so much that we're getting information early or getting information that we won't get later in the week as it is that I walk game by game and talk through how I look at games, right? So it's about those specific games the week ahead, but it also uh, is an example of how to talk through games. And so uh, I know you guys love when we do those episodes. I'm expecting to do one of those next week. We try to do two or three of those each year as a crowd pleaser. Uh, Again, if something critical comes up that really needs to be talked about next week, we'll do that instead. But my expectation is that the week six uh, Winter Circle podcast will be taking an early look at the week seven slate so that you can see the way that I talk through a game in my mind. And and again, same thing that we're talking about here, where if you can watch somebody do that, it's different from somebody giving you instructions on how to do it. You're able to observe me doing it. And the way you do it might be different from the way I do it. But by observing me doing it, you're able to 
plant seeds in your own mind of how you want to do those things. And so uh, today we will be looking back at my week for play. And the thought here is that as you see me walk through my pool from week four, my play from week four, what I did well, what I did poorly, you will be able to observe me playing, so to speak, and learn from that far better than if I were sitting here just giving you verbal instructions on how to play DFS at a high level. So, okay, this last week was an interesting week for me. It was an interesting week for me because I've, you know, I've been playing really well lately and it was, I think it was around like week seven or eight last year that, uh, you know, I had a slow start to last season. It was around week seven or eight last year that I had my first really nice week. And then week nine, the Justin Fields 5,500 week was when I started doing MME play and I really haven't looked back since then. It's been, uh, I believe I'm now at nine out of 12 profitable weekends since then. As I keep hammering, seven of those have been profitable, not because of my MME play, but because of my single entry three max play. So as I keep talking about this idea of having a lot of rosters to shop through can really sharpen your single entry three max approach. As I've been saying lately, if you are, even if you're a single entry three max player, if you're playing 70 bucks a weekend, 80 bucks a weekend, anything more than that, it's justifiable to spend that extra eight bucks a weekend or seven bucks a weekend, whatever the math works out to for something like the Bink machine or a different optimizer for that extra edge of, hey, I'm going to build out a larger player pool. I'm going to build out all these rosters and be able to shop through these rosters and find my best single entry three max rosters. As you'll see from uh, my end this last week, that ended up being uh, a $20,000 payout, taking that approach, getting a single entry roster that finished second place in a single entry tournament. That's not a single entry roster I would have hand built. But as I shopped through my rosters, it was one that I really liked, put it into the double spy single entry contest, finished second place there for 20 grand. And it was uh, one point off from first place, which would have been 50 grand. Uh, so again, that can, that's a big edge, right? It, these things end up paying for themselves if you leverage them correctly. But again, not everybody needs to take that approach. If you're somebody like Cubs fan and you can be, Cubs fan is able to build the types of rosters that I want to build. Whereas I'm too much in my head, I have too much knowledge, and so I'm not able to build those types of rosters, hand build those types of rosters consistently, but I'm able to set my rules in the Bink machine so that the Bink machine builds the types of rosters, it, it builds the best version of the rosters that I want to be building on that particular week. And then I can shop through them and find the best ones and put rosters into play that I wouldn't have been capable of hand building myself because I would have been too much in my head in terms of like, well, I got to max my salary here. I got to do this. I got to do that. Uh, so when we get to, you know, some of my rosters that did well, you'll see what I mean there. At the same time, this last week was my worst week of the season. It was my worst week of the season, not in terms of results. It was actually my best week of the season in terms of results. Let's see. Uh, so I, you guys know I play, generally play 6K a weekend. Week one, I returned 8K on that 6K. Uh, so, you know, profit about 2K. Week two, I returned, I don't recall, it was something like 18K that weekend. Uh, that was the week that I finished second in the slant. So, you know, returned about 12K in profit. Week three, uh, I finished down 2K. So I returned 4K on that 6K investment. And then week four returned 28K on that 6K. It was actually right there on, on returning 58K, but uh, just didn't quite get there. Um, had I returned 58K, I would have been at profit on the season in terms of I could have lost 
every entry fee every week the rest of the season and still been at profit on the year. So it would have been nice to have been that far ahead of pace with, you know, uh, 18 weeks left or 14 weeks left in the regular season, but uh, wasn't quite able to get there. So kind of plug away this week and and chip away at at that number and then kind of keep adding to my bucket of profit beyond that. Uh, So we're going to look at what the mistakes were in my play and why I was still able to have a successful week. So first off, what were we saying about this last week heading into the week? I talked a lot about how the spots that could turn into the had-to-have-it spots were pretty high confidence in terms of the likelihood of them failing was low, but the chances of them turning into true had-to-have-it type spots were also low. On the flip side, we had some spots, uh, Anthony Richardson, Justin Fields being our primary examples at quarterback. We had some spots where the floor was really low, but there were clear pathways to those turning into the had to have it pieces on the slate. So again, taking on higher risk on those types of spots, but there's also this pathway that, hey, you can actually have the higher ceiling by going in this direction. So quarterback was an example we used, some game environments were examples we used, but the the whole slate kind of shaped up that way. Now, one of the things we've also talked about a lot over the years in in Inner Circle subscription as a whole and in the Winter Circle podcast is this realization that people tend to swing too far one way or the other when they're building their rosters. So they tend to either try to exert so much control over their rosters that they are, uh, I mean, most people who are kind of losing money in single entry, and if you've lost money in single entry over time, this will probably resonate with you. They're trying to exert way too much control where it's like, you got a guy at 5,100 who has ceiling, but then let's use Nico Collins this last week as an example. You look at Nico Collins, you're like, oh yeah, he could hit. But then you say, man, Josh Palmer is 1100 less than Nico Collins. And I can free up that salary and go down to Nico Collins. And then I can free up that extra 1100 to go up somewhere else. And you kind of do that across your entire roster where it's like, where can I go down as far as I can in places so that I can go up as high as I can in other places. And so then when these players in the 5k and 6k range end up going for 30 points, 38 points, whatever it might be, you're just not on those players because you're working so hard to maximize salary and optimize every single facet of your roster. Uh, so that's like the extreme of this. But even when you're playing sharp single entry play or, or sharp hand build play, there can be this tendency to find as many of the high confidence plays as possible, not necessarily worry about what the ceiling is on those plays and just pile them all onto a roster. So the example we've used for years of that type of play is Keenan Allen. Obviously, uh, at a couple weeks this year where Keenan Allen was in a different category, we were fortunate enough to be on Keenan Allen on those on those weeks, uh, which, you know, given that we've spent years preaching against playing Keenan Allen, uh, I guess shout out to us for actually being on him on the weeks when it made sense to play him and when he ended up um, connecting, you know, with, with, with his upside, but these plays where it's like people play these guys, not because of their high ceiling, but because of how consistent they are. They play them because they're great cash game plays are great in double ups and head to heads where you want to limit your variance, where you want to just increase your floor as much as possible. But what are the chances of them winning a tournament for you? And so there's this tendency of building almost like Thunderdome type rosters. The Thunderdome is the $5,300 
uh, contest. It's usually about 30 entries. And the best way to win that is kind of pile up as, or the best way to do well in that is to pile up as much confidence onto a roster as you can. You don't want to be taking swings on Marvin Mims in the Thunderdome because if week in and week out, you're taking swings like that, you're just going to lose money where everybody else is kind of on these high confidence plays. But once you're in contests larger than the Thunderdome, once you're in even 300 entry contests, 400 entry contests where you're First place is still where most of the money is. That's what you're aiming for is those first place finishes. You can't just have a a whole roster full of high confidence plays that don't quite have the ceiling because you're going to always end up in like that. Yeah, you're not going to have those 110 point days or those 90 point days, but you're going to always end up in like that 140 to 170, 180 point range. And any tournament you're in, somebody is going to have higher scores than that. There are going to be rosters that have higher scores than that. At the same time, you can't just have these rosters that are filled with guesswork plays, even if they all have 30-point ceilings. If you're taking guesswork at a bunch of different spots, as, as we always say, you always want to turn the math in your favor. You always want to give yourself fewer things that you need to get right on that particular week. And if you are just taking swings on uh, across the board on guys who not only need, then a good example would be a guy who, A, like let's take Marvin Mims, A, you've got to get the snap, the snap share increase correct. Uh, and, and nothing against, if you played Marvin Mims this last week, he was on my main build this last week. And I've actually played really poorly with my main build three straight weeks. So that's not necessarily um, saying that it was sharp to play him on a main build, but that's to say that it was, you could justify it heading into the week, but you have to get the, you have to get the snap increase correct. Then if you get that correct, you have to get the increased usage correct, right? Maybe he plays 30 snaps last week instead of the 15 that he had been playing. Maybe he plays 30 snaps, 40 snaps, but then he still only gets five targets, right? And that doesn't help you all that much. So not only do you need the increased snaps to be correct, but then you also need the increased usage to be correct. And then you're talking about a a rookie in his fourth game who hasn't proved it yet beyond, you know, a couple of splash plays. So then you need to get the production correct on that increased snaps and increased usage on a team that spreads the ball around, right? So take that and contrast it with a team like the Dolphins, a team like the Rams, where we know with a high level of a team like the 49ers, we know with a high level of confidence where the ball is going, right? 49ers, when Brandon Ayuk is out, well, they're, now we're down to just three guys who are going to touch the ball outside of the quarterback in Brock Purdy. And even when all the guys are healthy. You really only have four guys who are ever touching the ball compared to a team like the Broncos, where we have one instance through four games of a player seeing more than seven targets. I mean, that's unbelievable, right? When you think about these other guys, Chris Olave is going to see 10 targets every week. Justin Jefferson is going to see 10 to 15 targets every week. Tyree Kill, it's going to be rare that he's under 10 targets. And then you've got this team in the Broncos that four games in, we only have one instance of somebody going over seven targets. Well, it's like, well, how do you even guess where the upside is going to be. First, you need the enough usage to be there, and then you need the plays to work out correctly, right? So not to say that you can't play pieces from that team, but to say that those pieces are in a particular category. Like Jerry Judy can still put up 35 points. Marvin Mims can put up 25 points, but you don't want a whole roster full of pieces like that where there's a bunch of guesswork. So one of the things that we should always be looking to do is blend that certainty with the ceiling and not to say that the certainty plays don't have ceiling as well. Ideally they do. And we want to see it's more about 
any given slate won't give us enough certainty for us to just fill out full rosters with certainty and ceiling. So you want to identify what are the certainty plays with ceiling on any given slate. And then you want to take intelligent swings on on ceiling around that where, sure, you have to take on some more guesswork, but these are the guys who can put up the scores that can separate you on the slate. These are the guys who can put up the scores that you might have had to have had. So when you're whether you're building out five rosters or you're building out 150 rosters, every player in your pool should be a player who could end up being one of those pieces that ends up on tournament rosters that helps people win tournaments on that particular week. So week three, we talked about this. My six highest owned wide receivers in week three ended up being, it's fortunate when it works out like this, but they ended up being the six highest scoring wide receivers on the slate. Uh, Minus Tyree Kill, but it was, uh, I had an either or between Justin Jefferson and Tyree Kill, and I went with Justin Jefferson. So uh, Tyree Kill outscored him by three points, but in terms of like where I was allocating my salary, I'm going to get one of these 90 nine K guys, right. Uh, could have split half down, you know, 50, 50 between those two guys, but either way worked out the same way. But then it was, you know, that week it was Justin Jefferson. It was Mike Williams. It was Keenan Allen. It was Amari Cooper. It was tank Dell. And it was Adam Thielen. Those are my six highest owned wide receivers. So as we talked about in last week's winter circle podcast, those six guys were mixed and matched across all of my rosters. So then when I have 8% Raheem Mostert, I have an opportunity for Mostert to land on a roster that has a pretty good chance of Mostert landing on a roster that has all four wide receiver spots filled up with guys from that list. I had 26% Kenneth Walker. So then, you know, I've got plenty of Kenneth Walker on rosters that have three or four of these wide receivers. Kenneth Walker put up 30 points that week, week three. Uh, And then I'm going to have opportunities for my 45 points from Mostert to land on a Kenneth Walker roster with 30 points at this other running back spot. And then all four, all four wide receiver spots smashing. So every week's going to be different in terms of where we get that confidence this last week. And this was, this was really what made the difference for me in week four, because I did, like I said, I made a lot of mistakes. We're going to get to my player pool here in a moment and what my allocations were and what my thought process was behind some of these. And also more importantly, where I was making mistakes and what those mistakes were. But what saved my week was just one really sharp angle that I found that was, that fit into this bucket of how do I get a high confidence core? How do I get a, what we call a block of guaranteed points? Now, this was a very, it was like after the one time in 2017, when I played two running backs from the same team as like a block of guaranteed points. Ever since that week, there were for multiple years, people were always asking, is this an opportunity to play two running backs from the same team. And I never found another opportunity where it was like, oh, this, this week makes sense. Now there have been some times where it would have worked out. You could have done this year with, with Mostert and Achan in week three, and you would have blown away the competition, getting a hundred points from your, your two running backs <laughs> who are low owned and low priced. And then you still got the rest of your roster from there. So there've been other times when it would have worked, but there've been no other times where I've seen it heading into the week. So This example from this last week is kind of one of those where I've never done this before, and maybe this will work again at other times, 
but this is the first time I've seen it and maybe I won't, won't see it again. So I say that to say, this is not like, Hey, here's something to look for every week, but this is just giving you an example of the types of angles we can be looking for that just totally transform our weekend. And as we know, oftentimes, you know, like I said, I was one point away from first place in that double spy where all of a sudden it would have been like, Oh, I can now literally lose every weekend, the rest of the year and be a, still be a profit on the year. I can lose every dollar I put in every week in the rest of the year and still be at profit on the year at the end of week four, right? So one weekend can make that much of a difference and finding those little angles on each individual weekend, it's dramatic, right? Because if you can piece together seven, eight weekends out of the year where you have those right, you know, week three for me where I had, you know, that core of all those wide receivers and actually that week didn't even end up working out as a profitable week. But the week four where like, if I, if we played out that slate a hundred times, I'm going to have some really profitable weeks on that slate, uh, or week three, sorry, uh, week four, because of this core, I still probably would have had quite a few profitable slates, but I would have had fewer profitable slates uh, if we played out week four, a hundred times the way I played it compared to week three. But again, having these, this core is like, oh, this is now guaranteed to be a profitable week over time, maybe on the small sample size of it being played out once it won't work out. But every time that we can find uh, some some angle that's like, man, now this would be a profitable week for sure if we could play it out over and over again, you know, and we can do that more than one time in a season. All of a sudden, we're, we're in such great shape to end up with not just profit, but really nice profit. And, and realistically, again, realistically, we can typically find this six, seven, eight, nine times throughout the year where we find some angle that just really helps us. So what was that angle for me this last week? The angle that allowed me to have a really nice week in spite of the mistakes that I made. That angle was, I talked all week I really hammered it on Friday in the player grid, uh, in the angles podcast and my show with Pete that the Rams through three games, uh, Tutu Atwell, Puka Nakua, Kyron Williams were the three focal points of their offense. Uh, Higby was seeing some touches and Van Jefferson was seeing some touches. And uh, Sean McVay talked last week about how, you know, Kyron Williams, every snap workload wasn't sustainable. So you knew that, knew that they were going to start mixing in somebody else behind him at some point. But it was still very clear that these three were the focal point of this offense. And through these first three games, the three of them, through the nine scores that these three had posted through three games, uh, seven of those scores have been scores that you would have been somewhere between satisfied with and thrilled with at their week four price tags. So with 2-2 Atwell, it was like he was consistently putting up, you know, 17 to 20 points at 5,500. With Puka Nakua, he had one down game and then he had like a 24-pointer and a 34-pointer at his 6,700 price tag, where that's like solid to elite production at his price tag. Uh, with Kyron Williams, he had, I think it was like an 18-pointer and a 30-pointer. Uh, and at 6K price tag and at the running back position, which is pretty thin right now, that's you know, solid to excellent production for that price tag. So I kept mentioning that. And I said on Friday that I would probably have a rule of one Rams piece on every single roster. And that I would have plenty of rosters with two of those guys. But on Saturday, uh, and I, I added this to the player grid in the Sunday morning update, but on Saturday, I started realizing that all three of them could be played together. 
and two of their three games. So they cost 18.2K in combined salary this last week. So in terms of salary multipliers, in terms of 4X, in terms of keeping you on a 200-point pace, on a week where 200 points was going to be really nice in a lot of tournaments, in terms of keeping you on a 200-point pace, they needed just over 72 points. And they had done that twice already, two of three games. These three players had combined, I think it was one game was like 75 points and one game was 78 points. And I kept working through the numbers and being like, well, you know, their likeliest outcome is about 60 points, but they've done this 72 plus points two times already. And furthermore, that was with uh, one of them, you know, I, and i as I mentioned when I gave this update, you had to throw in Cam Akers' uh, touchdown into the equation because in week one, Cam Akers had almost 20 touches or over 20, maybe it was 22 carries, something like that, uh, whereas Kyron Williams is now kind of the whole backfield. Um, so, you know, added the Cam Akers production from week one, and it, it got up over 72 points. And then uh, week two, these three had gone up over 72 points. And I kept looking at the context. It was like, well, against the 49ers, you know, they the in week two, Stafford threw the ball 55 times. And, you know, week one, I think it was uh, Kyron and, and Cam Akers combined for three touchdowns. So you're like, well, there's certainly pathways to this not happening again. Just because it's happened twice doesn't mean it's going to happen again. But at the same time, the Rams could easily, easily score four touchdowns in this game and all of them could go through these guys. Uh, the, the, the opportunity was there for it to happen again. And so it wasn't like I looked at it saying, well, these guys are just definitely going to get 72 plus points again. But I looked at it saying the likelihood's like way higher than anybody's going to realize. And furthermore, who on earth is going to play a running back and two wide receivers from a team and not play their quarterback? So already I know that this is going to be a very unique build and I know it's a pretty high confidence build. And so I'm recognizing that could it fail? Yeah. You know, in week three, these guys combined for just a little bit over 40 points, but looking at, you know, everything I know about the matchup and how these teams, you know, are set up against each other and how this game should go. It's like, well, they're probably getting 55 to 60 points. And can I sustain well, actually, let's look at let's look at it like this, right? So my roster that finished in second place in the spy out of in the double spy out of out of over one thousand entries, uh, it had Zach Moss on it, who scored only nine points, and it had the Patriots defense that scored three points and and really cratered my my chances there. Uh, in fact, I was tied for first place until they gave up their last touchdown and lost an extra point uh, on that to go from four points down to three points. So. I was able to take those two complete duds and still score 211.6 points to finish in second place in that tournament. And then you might say, well, that's a, again, most of us are playing single entry three max where the contests are a few thousand entries and below, but you might say, okay, but that's a 1000 entry tournament, but also, you know, flip over to the slant where I have, you know, I'm competing against 26,000 rosters. That same roster finished 45th place out of 26,000 rosters. I had another roster that finished 49th place out of 26,000 rosters, and it had Cortland Sutton on it, who put up only 11.7 points at 5,300. It had Darnell Mooney on it, because I had uh, uh, my boy Justin Fields on this roster. had Darnell Mooney on it, who scored only 9.1 points at 4,100. I had Josh Palmer on it, who scored 10.7 points at 4K. Uh, so those aren't price considered duds. It's not like getting three points from your defense or spending 6k for a running back and getting nine points. But again, that's 5,300. That's 4k. That's 4k. You're, and you're not getting, you know, you're getting two and a half 
two to two and a half X salary multipliers on all three of these guys, and yet still put up 210 points, finished 49th place. And in fact, I had about equal shares of Cortland Sutton and Nico Collins this last week. So, you know, basically the same price point. So if this, if the bink machine had happened to put Nico Collins on this roster instead of Cortland Sutton, all of a sudden I'm actually sitting in third place in the slant with this roster. And that's with the Josh Palmer disappointing score and the Darnell Mooney disappointing score. So point being, I can take 55, 60 points from these three Rams players and still have a shot at winning a tournament because then that's just kind of my underperforming block. And it's not, it's, it's still three, three X, the combined salary, three and a half X, the combined salary. So it's not really killing my roster. It's just that it's a large chunk of salary that's dedicated to a score. That's not four X. So it was a very interesting setup in that I recognize, okay, there's a pretty good shot at, at four X from a massive chunk of salary. And can they get up to four and a half X, five X pretty low likelihood that they do that. But anytime we can get four X from a huge chunk of salary, you know, again, oftentimes Justin Jefferson isn't valuable because he's going for four X he's valuable because he's getting you a good score. He's getting you 30 plus points and 30 points is always hard to get. So when you think about spending 18 K in salary and getting four X on it, that would be like playing Justin Jefferson and Tyree kill and both of them going for 36 points, right? Like that's not typically going to happen. And so getting that type of score from that huge of a chunk of salary is awesome. And if I had gotten, again, think about if you get 30 points from Jefferson and Tyree kill, that's not really what you wanted from them, but that's still a really solid score. And again, the highest scoring players aren't always going to be the highest priced players. So you can still find the 5k guys who have a 30 point game to kind of supplement that extra money that you spent there and, and kind of keep you on that 200 plus point pace. So, uh, even if I'd gotten 60 points from these three guys combined, which I felt like was pretty high probability, that's like spending salary on two dollars $100 players, right? Obviously it's covering three roster spots, but in terms of salary allocation, it's like, okay, I'll spend nine K for 30 points if that's what ends up happening. But I have a clear pathway to spending this 9K for 36 points or this 18K for 72 points. So what I ended up doing was I put, and and this was great because I didn't have a lot of confidence at the running back position this last week either. So I ended up going 80% Kyron Williams, 80% Tutu Atwell, 80% Puka Nakua. So what this ended up doing was it had every roster had, almost every roster had at least two of these guys. And so you end up with a bunch of rosters actually that have the Kyron and Puka pairing, which was the most valuable two-way pairing of the bunch. End up with a bunch of rosters that have those two guys putting up 65 combined points. And they're a pairing that most people won't have. Again, how many people are going to play the running back and the wide receiver from a team and then also do that without playing the quarterback? So I have a super unique pairing on two pieces who are two of the highest scoring pieces on the slate. But I give myself the opportunity to mix and match all these pairings in a bunch of different ways. So I have some Kyron and Puka rosters. Those were actually my favorites, technically speaking, um, in terms of like what was favored to do the best. Those were the ones that were favored to do the best because now I free up an opportunity with this with this 5,500 Tutu Atwell spot that I don't have on these rosters to end up on, say, Nico Collins, who put up 38.8 points this last week, uh, didn't end up lining up on my Kyron Puka rosters. Interestingly, my top finishing rosters were all rosters that had Kyron, Puka, and 
Tutu Atwell on them, just played the whole block on them. Uh, and again, these we won't always find blocks like this. Like we, we can go back to 2018 when we had the gift uh, down the last like six weeks of the season of uh, Josh Allen, Zay Jones, Robert Foster, and just play them every week at under 13K in combined salary, knowing that they were going to get you three and a half X almost every week and knowing that they had potential to get you a five and a half to six X, which they finally did in the last game of the season that year when they put up, I think it was 65 or 70 points uh, among those three guys. And so kind of looking for these opportunities to whether it's, whether it's, you know, high confidence players, you know, as, as your central block on your roster, or whether it's like a block of correlated players where you're just saying, yeah, Tutu Atwell, like notice I didn't count Tutu Atwell as one of my bombs on that roster with 211 points, that roster with 210 points, because even though he only put up whatever it was, seven point something points, he was part of this full block of 18K in salary spent. And so I'm just looking at him as part of that bet, not as a separate bet, a guy who disappointed on that particular roster. And so uh, it was an opportunity for me to recognize that, hey, if I mix and match variations of of two of these players across a bunch of my rosters and that I'm going to have 40% of my rosters are going to have uh, all three of these players on them. Now I'm in position for, you know, if, if we have what we had where yes, they combine for 70 points, but most of the production comes from two players. I now have a bunch of rosters that have just that absolutely correct combination of the right two guys. But then also I recognize that most people, I'm not competing against other people who are getting, and this is where it's critical. This is what we always talked about with the Josh Allen, Robert Foster, Zay Jones, when people would say, yeah, but like, wouldn't it be better to have Josh Allen and the one guy who does hit, right? Because most of those weeks, both wide receivers weren't hitting. It was like one or the other, but it was like, yeah, but nobody is building Josh Allen, Zay Jones. Nobody is building Josh Allen, Robert Foster. That was Josh Allen's rookie year. If you recall, the narrative around him was that he was a dumb pick for the Bills. He didn't have accuracy. He was a raw quarterback. Uh, he looked bad the first two thirds of the season, had an injury, sat out a week. And uh, when he came back, like everything had clicked for him and he was just super hot down the stretch. And we saw it before other people saw it. We believed it before other people believed it. We talked all the time about like li literally nobody is watching Bill's games. Nobody sees what this offense looks like. Everybody thinks this is a fluke and we can be on it before everybody else. And so the fact that people weren't on it allowed us to take all three players, not worry about which one might post a dud because we're just, and sure, you know, mix and match it so that you get the correct two player pairing in some of your rosters, but just having all three and just taking the block of points is so valuable. So we had that again this last week and I was able to, because people aren't going to play the running back and the wide receiver from the same team, they're going to look at it as an either or. And then if they are playing both of them, they're going to do it as part of a full stack with the offense, with Matthew Stafford. And so that opened up the opportunity to say, it really doesn't matter if one of these three guys underperforms because getting this full block of points becomes so valuable. So that was like the really sharp thing I did this last week. I laid it out in the player grid on Sunday morning. Obviously, I talked about it um, on Friday before I kind of realized, oh, you can actually just play all three across your rosters. I even considered playing all three of them on 100% of my rosters. But with my MME play, one of the things that I've always tried to do is give myself outs for other ways that the slate could play out. So I know that the, you know, we're going to have one to two Rams piece 
on every single roster. Well, that that doesn't concern me because this offense is going to put up points. And if I lose because the Rams just have an awful game and they score only 10 points, like I'm okay having that central thesis, right? I was a single entry player for at least a half decade where I would literally put in one roster on the weekend. So like I'm okay losing on a super high confidence bet like that. But when I was stretching things to like all three players and, you know, again, they could have only scored 55 to 60 combined. And then that holds me back from getting some first place finishes. So I wanted to give myself some extra ways for this slate to play out, but also wanted to make sure that at least 40% of my rosters had all three guys on them. Uh, Another key element there is that confidence to say, I see this. It's something unique. It's something that other people would consider to be against the rules of how you build for DFS of how do you justify taking two wide receivers and the running back from an offense and not taking their quarterback or not building a game stack around them. I didn't have Colts bringbacks on these rosters. Now I had some Anthony Richardson rosters obviously paired with this setup. I had some Matthew Stafford rosters paired with this setup, but I wasn't going out of my way to build around this game environment. I was going around my, I was going out of my way to build around this concentrated offense. So the fact that most people would just see this as being against the rules. Most people would just automatically see this as something that doesn't make sense, creates a huge edge because it allows you to play this thing that actually does make sense and know that nobody else will be doing it. Uh, So that basically was what made my weekend was that play and the confidence to, to, or the ability to see it. And then the confidence to say, Oh, well, it actually does make sense. Let me roll it out there on a bunch of my rosters. Uh, and that was able to, the fact that it ended up going for again, over four X, the combined salary of, of all three players allowed me to sustain some of the mistakes that I made. Because again, my player pool is almost always going to have every player on the weekend who has a monster game, right? I'm not going to miss out on any of the monster games from a given weekend. And so if you have that central core, it gives you a chance for that when that core hits for some of the pieces around it to also just fall into place in just the right way. So quarterback, this last week had a very small pool as expected, as talked about throughout the week, uh, had 26% Josh Allen, uh, 10% Jalen Hurts. So again, Josh Allen, as we talked about, the chances of that game environment being the type of game environment people wanted it to be, being well, the example I used last week was it's not going to be a, 48, a 42 to 38 game. Right now, it could be a 41 to 20 game, as we saw, but the chances of the Dolphins having, we talked, I won't go into it, we talked all week about why the Dolphins were not likely to have the type of game that people would want them to have at their price tags in this in this matchup in this game environment. And so Josh Allen was we were going to have to bet on that idea of so another thing we talked about last week which was when you're playing a team like the Dolphins you know that you need to keep the foot on the gas. And so we were basically betting on Josh Allen doing that um and interestingly having high efficiency on downfield throws and, and big plays uh, against a defense that does everything they can to take that away. But Josh Allen, higher probability of posting a had to have it score than Jalen Hurts in an environment where I expected the Eagles to control things that actually didn't end up being the case. Uh, but things did play out that way in terms of Josh Allen put up a 38 pointer. Uh, Hurts put up, you know, a solid score, but not a tournament winning score. So uh, that worked out nicely. 26% Josh Allen, 10% Jalen Hurts. Then in that next tier, as we talked about throughout the week, there was kind of three tiers to me. There was those two guys who probably weren't getting you uh, had to have it score. Josh Allen actually did end up getting up into that range, but their likeliest outcome wasn't a had to have it score, but their likeliest outcome was still a really nice score. You're going to be happy with what you got. 
But then you had these mid-6K guys, Justin Fields and um, Anthony Richardson, who probably, or, or not probably, but who had a higher percentage chance of cratering your roster, but also had within their range of outcomes 30 plus points at much lower price tags than than what I thought would be about 30 points from Allen and Hertz. So I went with 18% Fields, 18% Richardson, um, giving myself an opportunity for uh, either of those guys to to put up 30 plus points at a lower price tag. Fortunate in that both guys put up 30 plus points at lower price tags. Uh, and then the last two quarterbacks were Matthew Stafford at 18%, kind of mixing him in with all of these Rams builds, and Russell Wilson at 8%. Uh, wanted to have some Russell Wilson in this game opposite Justin Fields, but also recognizing that uh, if if it was a type of game where where Russell Wilson was able to put up a tournament-winning score as a primarily a pocket passer, then it was probably a game in which Justin Fields for just a little bit more in salary with his rushing upside was putting up an even better game. And so I wanted uh, more than double what I had of Russ. I wanted to have more than double that with Fields. So uh, six quarterbacks from those those three tiers that I laid out and kind of got, uh, you know, 36% exposure to that top tier with Allen and Hertz. I got 36% exposure to that next tier and then got 26% exposure to that next tier. Uh, the math doesn't work out quite right there. It comes up to 98%, but I think I just left it at that and let the, uh, you know, I always do, uh, you know, Josh Allen, it was like 24% to 28% in the bink machine. Uh, Anthony Richardson, it was uh, 16% to 20% in the bink machine. So there was that uh, sort of uh, room for the bink machine to play with. And so I just left it at 98% on those guys. Um Running back was 80% Kyron Williams, which was great because it allowed me to it allowed me to soak up a lot of my ownership at a spot where I didn't have a lot of confidence. And even though I knew that Kyron Williams could have like a, a 14 point game, I felt confident that if he was having that 14 point game, it was tied in with Puka and Tutu then having bigger games, right. And getting me to those 60 to 75 points from this block of players. And so even though it was like in the instance of what I said above where Tutu had 7.7 points or whatever it was. And but I wasn't counting that as one of my duds because it was part of this block of players. So that allowed me to not worry as much about one of my running back spots across most of my rosters. My next highest confidence plays were Zach Moss and Josh Jacobs, both at 26%. Uh, And then my only other guy over 10% was DeAndre Swift at 14%, basically recognizing that he's probably going to get 15% to 17 carries. He's probably going to get one to three targets. Um, not a monster workload, but, and not the best matchup against Washington, but a guy who can put up, who probably puts up, you know, 12 to 14, even in a bad game and can put up 30 points. So, um, on a week where I didn't have a lot of confidence, I just wanted to take a guy with a really strong range of outcomes. Uh, one of my first major mistakes was having that 26% Zach Moss. And it was the week was, there was enough to sort through on the week that I didn't get down to the finest details in a few key spots. We're going to see that when I get over to the defense position. Um, Zach Moss, obviously great, great play because of all the work that he was seeing, but with Anthony Richardson back and with the fact that he probably wasn't going to see much, if any pass game work with Anthony Richardson back was pretty critical and something that I, that I 
overlooked in terms of just like not quite drilling down to, to me throughout the week. It was like, Hey, here's Kyron Williams and Zach Moss. And they're both in this bucket of guys who are going to get a ton of touches. And Kyron Williams was 80% owned over Zach Moss at 26% owned, not because in my mind, he was that much better of a play, but because he was fitting into this block that I was playing and, and this central thesis of mine on the week. But realistically, Kyron Williams was like a three times better play than Zach Moss. Not to say that Zach Moss was a bad play. He was actually, you know, a bit, one of the sharper plays on the week, but he was a yardage and touchdown back, whereas Kyron Williams is a multifaceted back who's going to get a lot of pass game work in this Rams offense. So Zach Moss, I should have probably bumped him down a little bit lower than I did kind of in, in that DeAndre Swift type range. Not a major mistake, but I had, you know, Zach Moss on my on my roster that finished in second place in the, in the double spy. Whereas if I had DeAndre Swift, I'm finishing, you know, eight points ahead of the other guy. Uh, and that, 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 you know, is an easy first place win instead of a barely, um, second place finish there. So if I'd had, you know, if I'd bumped up Swift to 18% and bumped down Moss to 18% would have been a sharper way to go there. Kind of recognizing that they both had similar ranges of outcomes. Um, but it was just, you know, too much throughout the week for me to really get down to that that fine of a point and didn't quite see that. Not a major mistake. There's a couple other places this last week where I made more major mistakes as we're going to see. Um, now, I laid out my running back exposure and it did not add up to 200%. And then I massaged it in the bink machine. So I don't have the exact numbers because those were in the bink machine. But as far as my notes on the week, I had Mostert at 8%, um, Madison at 6%, James Cook at 4%, Kenneth Gainwell at 4%. Talked about that last week. Uh, Javante Williams at 6%. Josh Kelly at 4%, Tony Pollard at 8%, CMC at 6%. Uh, I think CMC ended up more around like 10%. I ended up adding with the ownership numbers not working out quite, quite right. And me then also asking, okay, are there any running backs I'm missing who could break the slate? Devon Achan ended up in my pool after this. So he probably had about 6% ownership in my pool. Uh, and yeah, so kind of had all these guys who were Lower confidence bets, but again, let's go through this list. Can Mostert score 30? Yes. Can James Cook score 30? He hasn't done it yet, but yes. Uh, can Alexander Madison score 30 in that great matchup against the Panthers run defense? Yes. Can Kenneth Gainwell score 30? Probably not, but he can score. He was 5,200. He could have scored... 22 to 25 points and been taking away those points from a more popular player in DeAndre Swift. So that kind of makes it worth it. Can Javante Williams score 30 low likelihood, but yes. And he was also going to be somewhat popular. So I wanted to count for the fact that I didn't think he could do it, but I knew that he could. I didn't think he would do it, but I knew that he could. And so I wanted to have a little bit of exposure to him and be underweight the field, but still have some of him just in case that was the piece I needed. Uh, could Joshua Kelly do it? Low likelihood because he's a yardage and touchdown back. But yes, he could. He could score at least 22 to 25. Uh, and again, down in that 5,400 range. Could Tony Pollard do it? I probably would have liked to have had less than 8% of him. But again, running back was tough for me. And so it was like, well, you know, where do you go? Let me get 8% Tony Pollard because yes, he could do it against any defense. Don't, don't like playing running backs against the Patriots defense, but he could do it. Uh, could CMC do it? Yes. In fact, he did. He put up 50 points. It was only, it was the first time he topped 35 points as a member of the, 
Uh, second time he topped 34, 34.3 points as a member of the 49ers. And I think it was, what was it? The fourth time that he had even cracked 30 points as a member of the 49ers, but apparently he can still put up a 50 burger. So uh, CMC, I think he ended up, like I said, on like 10 to 12% of my rosters this last week. Um, okay. So let's jump over wide receiver and go to tight end. Tight end was one of the first places where I guess I'll say one of the first places I made well, like a major mistake. I ended up with like 12% Cole Komet, which was great. Obviously he was anchored to my Justin Fields play. So everywhere where I played Cole Komet, I was also playing Justin Fields ended up being a really nice pairing. What I, the mistake I made and it's, it's a, it's a thing about overestimating how much we can predict touchdowns. Um, same reason why, you know, was a little bit underweight Christian McCaffrey compared to the field, which, which had a ton of Christian McCaffrey was because it's like, you know, you're spending a lot of salary on this guy and his likeliest outcome. And still we play that slate a hundred times. His likeliest outcome was about 25 to 32 points. He's shown that throughout a pretty substantial sample size with the 49ers, but he also can go out and have a four touchdown game. So I talked about how Stefan Diggs, uh, you know, what the Dolphins have tried to do to Diggs over the last couple of years or to the Bills over, over the last couple of years is force Josh Allen to go to his tertiary options. So whatever the first and second reads are, they want him to go away from those. And so we've seen Josh Allen, four of his last five games coming into, into week four, four of his previous five games against the Dolphins, Josh Allen had had a big game, but the pairing partner, the, the optimal pairing partner in those had been Devin Singletary, Isaiah McKenzie, Dawson Knox, right? Not Stefan Diggs, not Gabe Davis, because the Dolphins have been like, let's force you away from these guys. And one of the things I noted this last week was even the week when Diggs hit for 120 yards and a touchdown, he had a 55 yard catch, I believe it was. And so it was like without that one catch, now he's still at that like typical, you know, eight catches for 60 yards and a touchdown, which isn't doing it for you at his price tag. Well, same thing this last week. He actually had, I think it was like 120 yards and he had a 50-something yarder. So take away that one big catch, and that's a pretty disappointing game from like a catches and yardage standpoint. But the touchdowns can be there, right? And so he ends up, what was it, a three-touchdown game from Stefan Diggs. Uh, so one of the mistakes that I made was over, like leaning too far into that side of things. So my 26%... Josh Allen, uh, you would think that that would be, you know, at least 14% Stefan Diggs, 16% Stefan Diggs. Uh, I had 6% Stefan Diggs uh, across 26% Josh Allen. And then that led to me saying, basically saying, you know, most of my stacks with Josh Allen are going to be Dalton Kincaid and Dawson Knox. Um, you know, could have been James Cook, but but I decided to kind of limit my Cook Cook because of how expensive he was, and just say, hey, you know, what if it ends up being Kincaid or Knox? And basically, what I was saying was, and if it's not these guys, then it's still probably like no, like it's probably Diggs, but Diggs at like twenty six points or thirty points or whatever it might be, as opposed to Diggs putting up almost forty points, whatever he ended up putting up. Uh, and then with how thin tight end was, I also took another step forward and went way overweight on, on Ken Katie. He was 26% of my tight end pool, 12% Dawson Knox. So realistically, what I should have done was also look through the lens of the Bills offense and say, every 
most of their plays are designed to go to Stefan Diggs first. Most of their passing plays are designed for Stefan Diggs to be the first read, Gabe Davis to be the second read, and then kind of move through progressions from there. So even though only, even though 80% of the last five Dolphins Bills games had been, you know, somebody other than Diggs was the guy to put in there, doesn't mean that there's an 80% chance in this game that it's going to be somebody else. There's probably a, you know, 50 to 60% chance that it's going to be somebody else. And so I should have had digs on the other 40 to 50% of my Josh Allen rosters. It was still sharp. It was still sharp to recognize, hey, most people are just going to autoplay digs and I can recognize, and we'll get to another spot here in a moment where like that type of thinking, you recognize where the edges are in paying attention to those types of things, but still have to recognize, hey, these things can still happen. Um, and so like like me playing Javante Williams, it's like, did I think he was going to have a big game? No. Could he have a big game? Yes. And it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to strain the imagination to see that happening. So let me get Javante Williams on some of these, uh, like 6% of these rosters, right? Um, let me recognize that, that Diggs probably belongs on more than 6% percent of my rosters when I have 26% Josh Allen, more than like basically one fifth of my Josh Allen rosters, because just because it's only happened in one fifth of these last five games doesn't mean that's the true percentage chance of it happening. The chances of digs blowing up were lower than the field thought, but still higher than what had been the case across the last five games. So I should have had a little bit more digs and a little bit less Kincaid and Knox, and that would have freed me up to uh, have a little bit more Cole Komet as well, or maybe go, um, you know, with some different unique things over here at the tight end position. Rest of the tight end pool, uh, you know, nothing egregious, nothing that really hit, but it's a thin position, right? So you're kind of taking shots and and hoping you hit something that, that hoping you land on the guy who ends up hitting. So um, Pat Fryermuth, Tyler Higby, Logan Thomas, Dallas Goddard, Gerald Everett, uh, Jake Ferguson, uh, Hunter Henry, and George Kittle were my tight ends, sort of mixed and matched beyond those core three guys of Kincaid, Knox, and Cole Komet. Uh, okay, let, let's swing over to wide receiver. This is where I made, I would say my biggest mistakes on the slate. So thankfully the mistakes were somewhat offset by Puka and Tutu being 80%, 80%. Obviously, uh, Tutu did not hit, but just having that pairing, uh, again, as that full block of players, it did hit, right? And so that covered two of my wide receiver spots on a lot of my rosters and really sort of uh, eliminated the opportunities for these mistakes to hurt me as much as they otherwise could have. Uh, But the, I guess the crux of the mistakes that I made was I tend to be good at seeing the spots where the field is probably going to be wrong. I tend to be good at seeing the spots where the chalk isn't as strong as the field maybe thinks or as strong as the ownership would indicate and being underweight those spots or fading those spots. But just because those spots aren't necessarily going to hit doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the other spots correct. Instead of going overweight on the other spots, though, I kind of just went 
even weight with the quote other spots compared to the, th- the spots that I didn't think were really going to hit. So starting with uh, a guy I had too much of, which is Tyree Kill at 10%. And you can never say just in a vacuum, like, oh, that's you, you have too much Tyree Kill, right? Because he can always break the slate. But I talked all week about the difference between facing this Miami offense for the first time and facing this Miami offense for the fourth time in, in just over a year, which is what the Bills were doing. And, and what makes this Miami offense so difficult to face? and how much of an, not not an advantage, but how much less of a disadvantage a team like the Patriots, the Jets, the Bills are at because they've seen this offense. They know what to expect. They can account for the speed, right? They have, um, they have an experiential representation in their minds of what that speed is like and what they need to be prepared for and and how that will all look coming at them. And so uh, I had, I did not have confidence in Tyree Kill uh, and I played him only in the, in the way that I played Javante Williams saying, but he could still hit. And so I want to account for that. And yet for some reason I put him at 10% when, which put him as like my, I don't know, my seventh highest owned wide receiver. And that's, you know, it's, I've got a bunch of 8% owned guys. So it's like seven, seventh highest owned is only because most of my other guys were 8% or below, but um, really should have had him on 6% of my rosters to say, look, I don't think Tyree kill is going to hit. I trust my NFL knowledge in this area. And, but I also want to recognize that Tyree kill has surprised me before in the past. And it all, all it takes is, you know, two plays from him where the defense breaks down and all of a sudden, you know, Jordan Poyer's out for the bills this last week, which is big for communication for them on the back end, you know, two plays break down and all of a sudden Tyree kill is putting up a huge game that, that instead of five catches for 60 yards, it now becomes seven catches for 170 yards and two touchdowns because of these two busted plays. And you ended up needing to have Tyree kill. Um, and so I want to account for that, but, but 10% was too high. Not a, not an egregious mistake, but it was representative to me of some of the things that I was doing on this last week. Uh, another thing was, you know, I didn't have high confidence in some of these other spots. Uh, I had 26% Jamar Chase, which, you know, we have hammered this Tennessee Titans uh, pass defense matchup. We have been very successful hammering this Tennessee Titans pass defense matchup. So not an egregious mistake, but I've, I've watched these games. I watched Joe Burrow and the guy literally can't move. The chances of Jamar chase having a monster game were lower than I was giving it credit for. Uh, That one's easier to say, well, that's retrospective to, to call that a mistake. Um, But yeah, 26% 26% retrospectively, it was like, ooh, I wish I'd been a little bit lower there just because watching that game back, it was, you know, this week, four game against the Titans, it was like, man, how was Jamar Chase going to have a huge game? His quarterback can't move. His quarterback can't can't avoid pressure in the pocket. He can't do anything right now. And so, um, yeah, that one, you know, again, not an egregious mistake, but a little bit too high owned there. Uh, probably the bigger mistakes, and this was so basically on this week, what I should have done is let's look at some of these, some of these pieces. Tyree Kill didn't have high confidence in him. Should have had him at like 6%. Um, Keenan Allen, this one I was, I was proud of, uh, had him at only 6% of rosters. And, you know, in the past it would have been 0%, but given what he's done recently, 
6% felt, felt like, oh, I should have at least have some of him. But we talked all week about, look, the Raiders have faced the lowest first read rate in the NFL. Let's trust our NFL knowledge here. The Raiders have faced the lowest first read rate in the NFL. The Raiders took George Pickens out with, with no Deontay Johnson. He saw only six targets. The Raiders are selling out to take away a team's first option when that team's first option is like clearly what that team wants to lean on. And the Raiders, all the, the um, Chargers are also missing Austin Eckler, missing Mike Williams. So it's that much harder for the Chargers to punish them for selling out to stop Keenan Allen. So the field is going to look at that spot and say, oh, well, the Chargers don't have Austin Eckler. They don't have Mike Williams. They're going to throw relentlessly to Keenan Allen. But what I was looking at it saying and what I kept saying on the site throughout the week was the Chargers will probably be in control of this game. They'll probably run the ball more with Joshua Kelly. uh, And Keenan Allen is going to have a hard time piling up a ton of targets. Additionally, if he's piling up targets, it's probably going to be you know, of like the eight to 10 target variety. And he still has the same average depth of target he's had in the past. This 8.5, 8.6 average depth of target when we where we've always said, look, because of the way Keenan Allen is used, he either needs one of these going all the way back to the Philip Rivers days when this would still happen. He either needs one of these 14 plus target games or he needs to score multiple touchdowns. And sure enough, you know, he had the, the blow up game this year with multiple touchdowns. The other blow up game was a 20 target game. And we can go back to the Philip Rivers days and few times a year, he'll have these 14, 16, 17 target games. And then people just think that this is going to keep happening. And it doesn't. He goes back to the typical 9, 10, 11, 12 target Keenan Allen. And so which solid scores, right? Always solid scores, but almost never scores you had to have, almost never tournament winning scores. You know, heading into this year, it had been like, what, one score north of 24 DraftKings points across his previous 30 contests, I think it was, right? And then you kind of have one game where he's used on the outside a little bit more and he has some big plays and falls just short of a monster game. And then another game where he has multiple touchdowns and has a monster game. And then another game where he has 20 targets and has a monster game. And it's like, we've seen this Keenan Allen story before where we have two or three weeks like this, and then it goes back to normal. And then on top of that, you have this Raiders defense that's going to sell out to take away Keenan Allen. And in my mind, again, because I'm, I build everything in a bubble, I don't really listen to as much outside noise. Like I just thought of Keenan Allen as not a great play this last week. So when I, it was like the second or third quarter of the late games, when I realized how high owned Keenan Allen was, because I was mostly at that point, kind of just keeping an eye on my roster that was at the top of the double spy. And you know, not looking at any of the, the, the rosters way down the leaderboards. And then it was like the second or third quarter when I opened a roster that was kind of like within striking distance of me and saw that Keenan Allen was 40, 40% owned, 43% owned. And it was like, man, I didn't see him as a, a good play. Right. So we love spots like that, where maybe you're on different research than everybody else. And you see a play as like, not great. You want to account for it. You have a little bit of it, but then you see it's 43% owned. And it's just like, well, this is, this is a great edge when you can find spots like that. So proud of myself for the 6% Keenan Allen, uh, 4% CD lamb. You know, we know that he can post a big game and, um, Cowboys, you know, there were a lot of different ways that that, that game against the Patriots could have played out to where they could have been passing the ball more. The game could have been, uh, closer than expected. Obviously that ended up, um, very much, very, uh, vehemently and adamantly not being the case with the Cowboys dog walking the Patriots in that one. Um, but wanted a little bit of CD lamb, um, got my, you know, 4% Ayuk, my 6% Debo, um, 
and this is where things where kind of the mistakes start to come in, right? Where it's like the I, I only had six percent Keenan Allen. I only had uh I had ten percent Tyree Kill. Probably should have had six percent Tyree Kill. I had kind of these other guys where it was like, oh, this is lower confidence, so I don't I, I want to have some of it, but not a ton of it. But then instead of taking you know, lowering Jamar Chase to 18%. And Chris Alave, I had at 26%, not because I was so confident in him, but because I just wasn't seeing the other spots. So I kind of picked him as one of these guys that was, I was going to have higher ownership on, even though he wasn't a higher confidence piece. So Chris, Ala- Chris Alave, I should have had maybe down at like 12%, right? Uh, Justin Jefferson, I had 8%. I don't regret that. I wouldn't have minded 6%. But what that could have allowed me to do was if I'd lowered Chris Olave a little bit, lowered Tyree Kill a little bit, there are some other guys in here that I had a little bit more of than I wanted. And it was kind of fear-based where it was like, ah, well, I don't know where to go and people like this guy. So let me put this guy in this week. But what that would have allowed me to do was I had 8% Nico Collins. Well, I could have gotten up to 10% Nico Collins. I had, oh, I also had 18% Marvin Mims. I uh, wish I could have a do over there and go 8% on him, right? If I'm going to have these, the the guys I'm just playing because I need to account for them, I should probably have higher ownership on the other guys, the guys who it's like, yeah, but this guy really could hit, right? So then instead of 6% Thielen, I could have had 10% Thielen. Instead of, uh, 2% DJ Moore, I could have had, you know, and DJ Moore, I still kind of think about Pat Sertan and thinking, you know, I, I preferred Komet as the stacking partner with Fields and thinking um, DJ Moore probably wouldn't hit, but could have gotten up to 4% DJ Moore. Um, could have gotten up to 10% Nico Collins. Could have gotten up to, instead of 4% AJ Brown, it could, could have gotten up to 6% AJ Brown. You know, all of those were stacked with, with Jalen Hurts, obviously. Um Instead of 18% Josh Palmer, honestly, you know, Josh Palmer had a 33-pointer last year when Keenan Allen and Mike Williams were both out. So he was the alpha in the offense that game. Every other game, he topped out at like 15, 16 points. And he was kind of in this 9 to 16-point range. And that's great at his salary. But as we often say, like, you can only take one or two disappointing scores on your roster. So if you're just guaranteed, not, not disappointing, but like guys who aren't helping you win the tournament, right? And so if you're kind of saying, hey, here's a guy who can't help me win the tournament, but I'm going to play him. Well, even if he gets you 14 points, 16 points, that's a nice salary multiplier, but you still need to make up for that a lot in other spots, right? You you ideally want every guy on your roster to be able to get you 20 to 30 points if everything comes together. And Josh Palmer, it was a pretty low likelihood of a 20-point game. I still wanted to account for him. He was the sharpest guy down in that like 4K range, but I should have had 10%. Joshua Palmer instead of 18% Joshua Palmer. So basically kind of illustrating this to say I could have pushed up my some of these other guys who did hit and I had. I could have pushed up my Nico exposure an extra couple percent. I could have pushed up my Ayuk exposure from 4% up to 8%. I could have pushed up my Thielen exposure from 6% up to 8% or 10% um, by lowering some of these other guys. And so what I did was I kind of took some pieces that I wasn't high confidence on and bumped up their ownership higher than it should have been, which left these other guys who, you know, it was like, Hey, these guys have ceiling, but I don't know if they'll hit. Um, and, but kind of left them at the same ownership range as the guys that I really didn't have a lot of confidence on. and was just trying to account for. So, um, those were some of my mistakes there. Maybe not as egregious as I was thinking when I was thinking back on the slate on Monday, but definitely some mistakes there that could have made 
um, just that little bit of extra difference in in where my rosters ended up on this last week. And, and it's kind of one of those who knows things, right, where maybe you get one extra roster that pops to you and that just looks really good. And you put that into a tournament, right? You get that one extra roster that's also a 220-point roster and makes you a bunch of money on that week. Um, and then defense was my biggest mistake. Defense was one of those where... I never had a great feel for it throughout the week. And so I just kind of settled. It was like, man, this, there was a lot that I had to sort through on last week's slate. And so I was just focusing all my attention on these other spots and kept being like, okay, you know, and the, the, the Browns are, you know, the best cheap defense. And so kind of set them over here and, um, and kind of just spread out my, my, my defense ownership and then had highest owned guys, uh, highest owned bets on the Saints, the Browns, the Texans, and the Eagles. So major mistakes there. One, like, okay, all my rosters were built, entered, whatever, by the time that it was clear that Deshaun Watson was not starting. But by the time it was clear that Deshaun Watson was not starting, shouldn't I have pivoted a bunch of my defenses over to the Ravens? Absolutely. And I just didn't do that. In fact, I had 0% Ravens because I didn't have them in my, in my final pool when I was, when I thought that Deshaun Watson was going to be starting for the Browns. So I didn't necessarily need to run a a new set of 150 builds and, and overwrite all of my slant lineups. But what I could have done was gone through my rosters and kind of seen like, where do I have salary to get as many Ravens defenses in here as possible in places where I don't have high confidence. Uh, Another mistake for me, I had 6% Vikings. Uh, Vikings was actually on my, it was kind of uh, funny. My, my roster that finished 45th in the slant, and second in the double spy had the Patriots defense on it. My roster that finished uh, 49th in the slant was not one of my single entry three max rosters. Uh, it had the Vikings defense on it. And you're sitting there like, man, here's 17 points from this, this defense. Uh, wish I could have gotten this placed over onto this other roster. Here's Zach Moss on this other roster with nine points. And I've got DeAndre Swift and all these other rosters. Wish I could have gotten DeAndre Swift onto this roster. Um, but Vikings defense, you know, and I talked all the, all week about like how, how much the Vikings do to make a quarterback think and watching, watching Bryce young, watching every game from, from the weekend and seeing Bryce young in the context of all the other quarterbacks. It's just like, you can't help, but notice the hesitation, the extra seconds that he's holding onto the ball, the, the lack of trust in his ability to pull the trigger as quickly as he needs to in some of these spots and then add in a defense that is going to make the quarterback have that extra pause, have that extra thinking. Yes, the Vikings don't have a ton of talent on defense, but the Vikings were perfectly equipped to do well in this game against Bryce Young. Something I talked about all week, obviously my 6% Vikings defense was much higher than the field's ownership, but I should have had more confidence in what I was seeing there uh, and should have had those pivots over to the Ravens defense. And so, you know, we talk a lot about these weeks where you're like, man, I had a great week this week. And then you realize your defense scored 20 something points and you, you swap that out for a different defense score and your week looks totally different. Right. And so getting that defense that does put up 15, 17, 20 points is, is enormous. When it happens, you really want to be on that defense. I mean, I, I don't know. 
it's been rare that I've had 200 points. Like I had this 211 point roster that finished second in the, the double spy this last week and had the Patriots defense getting three points. That's hard to do, right? Like typically if you have those 200 plus point scores, your defense is part of it because you, again, you can only take a couple duds. And so, you know, you, if, if a defense scores a bunch of points, you want to be on that defense. That's a huge edge and really makes up for some other spots on your roster. So the fact that I played the Browns, at such a high rate and didn't shift off of that when the Browns were going to a raw rookie quarterback in his first start against the Ravens defense, where it's like, you know, a lot of these points that the Ravens were getting that were taking away points from the Browns defense in fantasy was short fields, you know, turnover, short field, Ravens score, turnover, short field, Ravens score. And that that's what happens in these spots where all of a sudden the Ravens defense special teams become becomes a good play. And that, basically means that the Browns even special teams is becoming a significantly worse play because it's going to be that much harder for the for the Browns to keep the Ravens out of the end zone. The, the Ravens will have to pass that much less, take that many fewer risks and have that many shorter fields. So I really just like gave away a bunch of opportunities for upside at the defense special teams position by you know, and it was, like I said, it was a tough week. It was a week that I had a handle on, but I knew that it was going to take like a lot of work. And most of that work ended up on other spots, uh, across the slate. And so I just kind of left that defense spot alone and didn't really have the, um, the vision to make those pivots. And it, it retrospectively, it was so obvious. And that left, uh, on a week where my, that core bet with the Rams thing was so sharp and really put my rosters as a whole in good position. And I had enough of these upside pieces. You know, anybody who hit for a big game, I had some of them. Uh, so it really kind of set me up in a, in a position where, um, you know, could have been a lot better than it was if I had just spent that little bit of extra time and put that little bit of extra intention on the defensive side of things. Uh, so that was my last major mistake on this last weekend in terms of player pool and how I put my rosters together. Uh, next most major mistake. Uh, it was the third week in a row that I've had a really bad roster in the game changer, which is the $1,500 single entry contest. It was also the second time in three weeks or maybe the third week in a row that I hand built my game changer roster. So here I am preaching about how valuable it is to build out your, your pool. Like even if you're not an MME player, even if you're not going to play any MME, how valuable it is to build out your pool as if you are going to build a hundred rosters and then build those hundred rosters and then shop through them to find the sharpest ones and put those in a single entry three max play. And, you know, every week, as I've mentioned, I shop through, I don't have a set number, but I, I, my favorite ones, I set them aside. I enter them into the play action, which is the $3 20 max, uh, and enter them into the, well, the ones that I like, I enter them into the play action and that basically sets them aside. So then I can scroll through my rosters and see, okay, which rosters now have two entries on them. And those are the ones that at that, through that first pass, I liked. Uh, so my process, build up my player pool, build up my percentages, put it all into the bink machine, um, start building rosters. And as I'm building rosters, start building in rules. Uh, so, uh, you know, build out 
50 rosters and then scroll through five, six, seven rosters and see things. It's like, oh, this player I want, you know, I want this rule added so that these rosters look like this and these rules rules added so that these rosters look like this. And so then you add those rules and you run another 50 rosters and then uh, add a few more rules. And you do that until the rosters start really looking the way that you want them to look. And then I build up my 150. I put them in the slant. And then I go roster by roster. If you're if you're new to this, I've talked about this uh, in recent weeks, but it takes about 30 to 45 minutes. People have said, I've had a couple of people say, man, doesn't that take forever to, to look through one rosters one by one? And I've said, yeah, but we're trying to make money here. You know, like, like this is, this is a, such an edge for making money in single entry three max play. That extra 45 minutes shopping roster by roster is so valuable, right? And what I'm doing, uh, I said this earlier that earlier today on my show with Keegan, that I look at this as like everything in the week leading up to that point of shopping for rosters is actually everything leading up to Saturday night is like practice. It is, it's like watching film. If you were an NFL player, right? It's the practice. It's the watching film. It's the studying the opponent. It's the studying the game plan. Um, it's the Shane Steichen and something I was watching with him a couple days ago. He's talking about, uh, Shane Steichen, the Colts head coach, former Eagles offensive coordinator. He's talking about how, you know, all week he's putting together, you know, everything for the week, right? Here's his second and seven play calls. Here's his third and one play calls. Here's his, you know, everything for all these different categories. But once you're in the game, you're in the flow of the game and you just have to be in the flow of the game. And sometimes it's like, uh, it's a second and seven. And you're like, okay, I actually have a thought and I'm going to pull this play from this part of my sheet. That's not on my second and seven sheet, but this is the play I think is going to work here. Right. And so it's like preparing, you prepare, you prepare, you prepare. And 80% of the stuff that you're going to do, 80% of that, the stuff that offensive coordinator is going to do on Sunday is going to be all the stuff he prepared and all the stuff that's categorized on his play sheet. But there's going to be that 20% or maybe 15%, 10% that he's just pulling in the moment. Like I'm in the flow. I'm seeing things well this game is going this way. And so I'm going to make this decision right here. And so that's kind of how I see the DFS week, right? Every, my, you guys know my, my Tuesday, really my Monday and Tuesday, but my, my Monday is quote my day off. I usually get a head start on Monday, but my Tuesday is my collect day. I'm collecting as much information as I can. My Wednesday is my sketch day. It's the day that I put together my DFS interpretations where I kind of go game by game and I sketch out what I expect to happen and what I expect that to mean for DFS. My Thursday is my blueprint day where I start to really say, okay, based on what I was seeing in my sketching stuff, like what does a player pool potentially look like and how, how would we piece that together? Friday and Saturday are my build days where Friday night, I really start saying, okay, what will my builds look like? And then Saturday night is like my build where I really do it. And to me, that's like game day. It's build and carve are the last two stretches where carve is like, what are the final pieces here? How am I, how am I changing anything here in my pool? But the whole week is set up that way, collect sketch, blueprint, build carve. And it's all leading toward that Saturday night where I'm going to make all my final decisions. So 80%, 85%, 90%, of my stuff is already decided when I head into Saturday night. I'm not going to start from scratch, but I do start from scratch. So what I mean by that is I go game by game on Saturday night and kind of basically around nine o'clock, my kids are asleep. Abby goes upstairs and I kind of just like pace around the kitchen with the lights off game by game. Sometimes I'm sitting, sometimes I'm lying down, whatever I'm doing, like just to try to clear my mind and get into that headspace where it's like, okay, this game, is there anything I'm missing in this game? And what do I want my percentages on these players to look like in these games? I've already done all this work, right? Most of it ends up coming out looking the way I would have expected it to look, but that's game day to me. It's like, that's where I'm trying to get in the flow and make these final decisions. And I go game by game. And at the end of that, it usually takes me about three hours 
at the end of that, I have my final player pool and I've, I've gone through and been like, who could break the slate, right? Who are the guys I have to account for? I have my player pool. I have my percentages. And then there's about an hour, hour and a half of massaging those percentages, getting everything into the bink machine, uh, laying out the rules, going through the builds, right? And then it's about four, four and a half hours into this process. And I have my 150 rosters and I put them all into the slant. And then I kind of reset and I have my last last stretch, which is kind of, you could say like the fourth quarter type stretch where you're going to really win or lose things. And again, uh, two of my, maybe I've had maybe three really profitable weekends in MME in these 12 weeks I've been doing MME, but also seven of these 12 weeks, like profit has been due to single entry three max, right? And so that's really where my focus is. And that's where in my mind, you're going to make the most money is this single entry three max stuff. And so, yeah, the MME stuff is taken care of and I might already be set up for a profitable week there, but now it's kind of that fourth quarter stretch where I am going to create my single entry three max pool of rosters. And that's over time where I'm going to make the most money. And so I've done all this work. Now I'm going to reset and I'm going to go roster by roster. So most of you have heard me talk about this already, but again, what I do I look at, I, I go to the play action and go to draft entry because I've already reserved them when I flew to Oakland earlier in the week. I go to draft entry, import roster. And let's say that my 150 rosters are, you know, just the 150 that I built in the bank machine, right? So I go, I look at roster one, I, as I've said, close my eyes, take a deep breath just to make sure that I'm paying attention to that roster, that my focus isn't wandering, that I'm not just kind of casually scrolling through rosters and look at that first roster. Do I want to enter it? Do I want to set it aside as one of the rosters that really stands out to me? If it's not roster one, close my eyes again, look at roster two. And again, in, in the DraftKings app, your rosters are numbered, right? So if I've only, if I didn't do any practice builds, if it's just the 150 rosters I imported from the Bink machine, they're going to be listed one through 150. So it's very easy to keep track of them. And then you might get to roster nine. You might get to roster 12. You might get to one of these rosters and it's like, ooh, I like this roster and it's not about the logic. It's not about this individual piece is on here and this salary is maximized in this way. It's you see a roster and you're like, oh wow, all these guys can go for a big score. This roster can win me a tournament, right? And it stands out to you, the story that it tells or the way that it's set up or whatever it is, you see it and you're like, this is a sharp roster. And I enter it into the play action. So then I go to draft my next entry and I say that was roster 12. Now I import and start at roster 13. And I just keep going through the list until I've gone, gone through all 150. And um, I've had times where it's taken me 30 minutes to do this. I've had times where it's taken me well over an hour to do this, depending on kind of how much my thoughts are trying to wander and, and how much I'm in the groove with things. But um, And so then I have all these rosters set aside. I haven't had to think about like, where do I want to put these rosters? It's just staying in that groove of which of these rosters are standing out the most to me and which ones have been entered into the play action because those are the ones that stood out to me as I went through them. Then I go through those rosters again, kind of st try to stay, stay centered and I look at them and try to see, okay, why are they standing out to me and where do I want to put them? So this last week I had one, two, three, I'll stop counting. I had 15 rosters in all that I set aside in the play action this last week. And so then I went through them. And as I walked through last week in the Winter Circle pod podcast, I went through them and I made notes on each of them. Roster 15 was a hand-built roster. My note on it was, uh, it was a hand-built roster from earlier in the week among my practice builds. Uh, I made a note on it that said I want $150 more on this roster. Roster 59, so now we're getting, you know, we're past my practice builds, we're into my Bink Machine rosters. Roster 59, my note was one of my favorites. 
roster 60 was $50 more. So that meant that it was one that I liked, but wasn't super confident in $50. My $50 single entries are, are typically they're like larger single entries and it's less money at risk on them. So it was like, this is one where maybe I'm taking on a little more risk, but I see the ceiling on it. And so I want 50 more on it. A roster 63 unique. It stands out to me, deserves at least 150 more. That was my note on it. Roster 65, uh, Allen slash Tyreek deserves another 150-ish. Unfortunately, that one obviously didn't hit. Uh, roster 79, my note was pops to me. In other words, it just stands out to me when I look at it. Roster 81, 50 more. Roster 85, a standout. Roster 91 needs a large field shot. So that's one that, uh, you know, again, a little bit less certainty on it but the ceiling is there and it's a unique build and it stood out to me. So I want to have it in, in a large field contest roster one eleven. Uh, my note was one that I keep seeing, but I think it's my knowledge more than feel maybe 100 more. In other words, that was one that it was like, my logic was saying, Hey, this is a really good roster, but I wasn't just looking at it and feeling like, man, this is a great roster. This is a roster that can win a tournament this week. Uh, Roster 118, I'd never written this before, but I wrote Silky. Probably needs at least 50 on it, could be 100. Um, roster 123, too easy, needs 100 to 200. Roster 136, Achan has stood out to me a few times with no idea if it's actually good. Maybe 50-ish on this roster. Uh, roster 177, damn, this one is Silky too. Uh, roster 181, boy, dot, dot, dot. Uh, really liked that one. So, interestingly... Roster 59, one of my favorites. That was the one that I put into the double spy. That was my top roster on the entire weekend. That was one that scored 211 points. That was the one that finished second place in the double spy, finished 45th place in the slant. Uh, and then some of these other ones obviously did did really well as well. Uh, roster fifty five, roster fifty nine had Nico Collins on it, and that was one that I never would have hand built because when you're going through and hand building and you're and you're and you're in that headspace. And again, I've I've had stretches where I've been like in a flow state with hand building, and I've been able to see stuff like this and build stuff like this. And some people like Cubs fan, they're always able to build hand build in that type of way. But typically, my especially. It was from the point when I started writing the NFL Edge onward, right, where I'm so deep into the NFL knowledge. It's like from that point onward, my NFL knowledge gets in the way. And you're looking at Nico Collins at 5,100, but you're also like, man, he only saw three targets last week. And it could be Tank Dell who hits. It could be Robert Woods who hits. And maybe CJ Stroud has a down game. And then you've got Cortland Sutton there at 5,300. And he had 11 targets last week. Uh, you got Michael Thomas there who, you know, Michael Thomas didn't hit. But in my mind, it was like, man, everyone's on Adam Thielen as this guy who's not really going to see downfield looks, but he's going to see a bunch of targets. And Michael Thomas is kind of the same exact thing. He's not going to see downfield looks, but he's pretty much guaranteed his targets and nobody's really on him. So, you know, it's harder to say like, oh, I'll just pull the trigger on Nico Collins because you know that he could get you three points or four points, five points, whatever he had done in week three. And so... When he gets you those 38 pointers, he's not on your single entry rosters. He wasn't on my double spy roster because I said, Nico Collins is such a great play. I've got to get him on a single entry. It was because he was in my pool as a guy who could hit a guy I wanted to account for in my MME play. And then when I shopped through my rosters, that one just stood out to me as one of my favorites. And it stood out to me multiple times. And every time it stood out to me, my thought was, uh, Nico Collins is on it. And honestly, if it had been a different wide receiver, I probably would have had that as my main build just because it kept standing out to me as one of my favorites. But because it had Nico Collins, it was like, okay, well, I'm not putting it into the game changer, but I will put it into the, the double spy. I will put 200 bucks behind it because I did mark it down as one of my favorites. And I think I had like uh, 350 bucks behind that roster or something, but didn't have my 1500 behind it in the game changer. Um, 
Same thing with the A-Chan roster. I think the A-Chan roster actually had Nico Collins on it as well. Uh, okay, I just pulled it up. It actually didn't, but it did finish 16th place in the uh, single entry red zone, which is a $50 buy-in. Let me see how many entries. That is 1.1K entry. So finished 16th place. It was one that I marked down and said, A-Chan, this one has stood out to me a few times with no idea if it's actually good. Maybe put 50-ish dollars on it. So again, this $50 single entry, that was where it ended up. Uh, had Michael Thomas on it, and that basically means, again, at 8% Michael Thomas, I had 8% Nico Collins. Just as easily could have been Nico Collins on this roster, which would have added an extra 30 points. It would have put me at 127 or 227, and I would have won this contest by 21 points instead of finishing in 16th place. Um, oh, and I finished uh, four spots behind Sonic, uh, who finished in 12th place in that contest. Anyhow, point being, could I have gone out of my way to put A-Chan on a single entry roster with that with the typical DFS player mindset where you're like, I'm going to optimize this. It's a single entry, so I'm going to optimize this roster. No. And that roster also had Cole Komet at 4% owned, had Justin Fields at 6% owned. It had Jerry Judy at 2% owned, who I still think was a sharp play, even though he didn't hit this last week, just in terms of, of ceiling and low ownership and range of outcomes and all that. Um, Michael Thomas on it at 1.3%. Well, Michael Thomas is going to have a lot of games like this, right, where he puts up 9.3 DraftKings points. So far, he has 11.1, 12.5, 11.0, 9 .3, but he has zero touchdowns all year. And he's going to have some games where, you know, he has a 13-point a game for the touchdowns, but he puts up two touchdowns. He's going to have some 25-point games this year, and so, or, or he's going to have opportunity for those types of games this year. So another, another roster where it's like, Maybe I'm not going out of my way to hand build that type of roster, but it stood out to me as a really sharp roster. And so I was able to put it into play in that single entry contest. And so uh, go through all of that. I go through all of that again so that you can see how I do that and how you do it might not be the exact same way, but it can give you some some visuals of some of the ways that it can be done. And it gives you an opportunity to quote, watch me do it, so to speak, and then use that to see what makes the most sense for you and what you can take from that. And again, not, not this logic side where you're like, okay, so now this is going to be my process, but start moving toward a weekly process and allow it to develop around you until you have something that's comfortable and you have something that allows you to make those final decisions on Saturday night or Sunday morning and allow that to be sort of your game day, so to speak, where you're going to get, you're going to block out all distractions and you are going to build during that amount of time and maximize your chances of having, of taking your full week of work and applying it in such a way that you're maximizing your chances of a successful week that week. Uh, so last note here, again, going back to uh, where this all started, where it kind of went through my, my rosters was this has been so sharp, right? Like last week, uh, so I set aside my favorite rosters, uh, last week, my 13 chop block rosters, seven of them finished in the money. Uh, I've finished so far this year. I've had uh, a second place finish in the chop block, two fourth place finishes in the chop block, a first place finish in the chop block, right? And the chop block is where I'm taking these set aside rosters, the ones from the play action. And it's like, okay, what are my favorites out of these ones? They're going in the chop block. And every week, over half of them are finishing in the money. Every week, I'm having some of them finish up near first place. And then every week, I've been taking a, a roster that's not from that pool of rosters and putting it in, into the game changer and being like, okay, well, let me hand build 
for the game changer. And let me get too fine in the game changer because it's this thought. It's not even about the money. It's not even about the, the fact that that's a $1,500 entry. Because, I mean, that is 25% of my buy-in on the week. But again, there's, there's other places where I have opportunities to make money, right? I had the slant in week two. I had the double spy in week four. So it doesn't have to be the game changer that makes me money, but it is one of the clearest places to make money because uh, it's 300 entries and or 300 80 now, maybe something like that. Uh, but you know, first place is hundred K and, and the, the, the payouts don't drop off that quickly. And, uh, I'm building rosters to where if every week, just mathematically, right. If every week I took one of my 13 chop block rosters at random and tossed it into the game changer. Well, mathematically, given what I've been doing so far in the chop block, mathematically, one of those weeks, I'm going to end up on the right roster for the game changer that ends up finishing in the top five or so spots. Um, and last last year when I was in a groove down the stretch, I had a roster that finished. I, I don't recall now if it was second place or third place in the game changer, but I think it was second place in the game changer. Um, when I was in a groove and just kind of do, doing my MME and taking those rosters and putting them in. And, um, and, you know, these last three weeks, it's been like, man, I really got to do well in the game changer though. So let me hand build this one. And so this last week it was, um, you know, not a bad roster, but ended up with Marvin Mims, where I don't think that he was on any of these rosters that stood out to me in the chop block. Maybe he was on one or two, but he wasn't a guy that was like on these rosters that were standing out to me. And as we've talked about before, a lot of times it's not just about the players on the roster, but the construction on the roster. When you're on a particular price point, right, it pushes you to another price point where maybe you're not targeting Nico Collins price range on your single entry stuff, but that might be the price range you end up needing to be in for that first place finish. Um, obviously, I had Jamar Chase because I was sort of forcing him onto rosters this last week and really expected him to have a big game. And so when I was shopping through my rosters, I had plenty of these rosters that stood out to me that didn't have Jamar Chase. But when I'm thinking about the game changer, it's like, oh, well, I got to make sure I have Jamar Chase on this roster. So I basically hand built specifically to, to go out of my way and say, okay, how do I make sure that I get... Uh, the full, you know, I couldn't differentiate between Kyron Williams and Zach Moss. Again, like I said, that was another mistake of mine. So it was like, well, let me just get both of them on this roster. So that right there, it already set me up in, in something that ended up not playing out well. Uh, Marvin Mims, it was like, well, I want to take this swing on Marvin Mims. Well, again, that's a guy who gets 6.7 points. He was actually 9% owned. So you didn't even get the ownership discount on that Browns defense where I wasn't even pivoting, but it was like Browns is my highest confidence defense. So let me make sure I get this on my game changer roster. They put up four points. Uh, and then, um, Dawson Knox as my pairing partner with Josh Allen, because again, this thesis of, of, well, probably it's probably not Stefan Diggs being the way to go. And so and, and this isn't not sharp, right? It's like, hey, the the Allen Diggs rosters are not going to have Jamar Chase. So if Diggs puts up 14 points and Knox, you know, Knox had a six catch for 98 yards in a touchdown game against Miami last year, right? If Knox puts up not even a game like that, but if he puts up 15 points and uh, and Jamar Chase puts up 35 points and you know that most of the Josh Allen rosters, A, don't have Knox, B, don't have Jamar Chase because they have digs at the exact same price point. Well, now you're way ahead of the field, right? It wasn't, it's not a bad roster. It's still a sharp roster, right? It's, and it put up 148 points, uh, didn't fall out of the money until the fourth quarter of the late games, but you know, it was just too controlled. It was too much like, and here's the optimal play here. And here's the optimal play here. Instead of giving myself that opportunity to have a roster that I see and say, this is a sharp roster. I was starting from, I was starting from scratch and saying, I'm going to build 
A-sharp roster. And that can work, but it, I have proven to myself that that is working far less often than me just identifying the sharpest rosters that I'm building, right? Where roster 59 this last week was marked down as, quote, one of my favorites, and it was indeed my highest scoring roster on the weekend. And so um, giving myself those opportunities in the game changer, that was that was another, you know, that's 4,500. Uh, you know, week one, obviously made money in there, made 1,500. So uh, in all, I'm up 34K or something like that on the season, but down 3K in the game changer, which should be, you know, one of my more profitable places to be. And so, um, you know, lower rake and I don't, uh, I don't necessarily consider the competition to be that much higher than in other single entry contests. Um, I think that the edge is as big or bigger in that contest. And yet I keep giving up my edge in that contest by saying, you know, I've got to pick just the right roster. And, and the best way to do that is just to build it myself. So uh, that was a big mistake on my end. And I think that that probably hopefully resonates with some of you, because I know that that's something that we can all fall into is uh, thinking like, oh yeah, this other stuff, this other stuff works, this other stuff can work, but I don't want to have a losing weekend this weekend. So let me make sure I, I control the, you know, the, the entries with, the most amount of money behind them or control the entries that I actually put into play or, or whatever it might look like. So, um, again, every player is different. Some of us can build our best rosters just playing that way. And, and like I said, I've been in grooves over, over the last 10 years where I have built really excellent hand-built rosters, but that's not a groove I've been in over the last season and a half. And yet I've been consistently excellent with the MME approach and then shopping through those rosters. And so, um, yeah, those were my mistakes this last week. That was my, those were the, you know, the sharp points this last week as well. That was my uh, week where definitely would have been profitable if I could have played out that week a hundred times, you know, was profitable in the, in the small sample size of one week. It was my, my most profitable uh, week of the season today, 22K in profit. But um, it was a less it was, if I had played out this slate a hundred times, it would have been less profitable than week three, which, you know, again, was unprofitable in the small sample size of one week. It was not my sharpest weekend, made some mistakes, and um, fortunate that the the Rams block uh, ended up, you know, playing out to my advantage, playing out to my favor, and fortunate that, you know, I was in the right headspace, in the right flow when I was shopping through my rosters and was, you know, again, sort of... Uh, I always recognize, you know, there's going to be one of these weeks where my whatever happens, my headspace just isn't there and I'm not able to find the best rosters when I shop through. And I'm going to have like a bunch of rosters that finish near the top of the um, of the slant because I have that almost every week. And yet I'm going to have, you know, none of those rosters in my single entry three max. But for right now, I've been in a good groove every, every week of, of being able to really see the rosters well and see, okay, here are my best rosters out of these 150 um, and get get those into single entry three max contests. So uh, where, where other people are playing tighter, right? And other people are playing kind of trying to optimize their, their rosters for the salary and the projections and the Sims and all that. So um, yeah, I guess last note on that, I do think this is, I, I, I mean, and I don't think I'm out of place saying this, you know, because I've I actually don't know exactly what I'm up over the last 12 weeks of play, but it's, you know, it's probably 80 to 90 K maybe more than that um, without any like monster hits. Right. And I do think that this is the biggest edge we've had in NFL DFS since like the 2014, 2015 era, because as people rely so much more on projections and so, so much more, not that I want to extend this podcast any longer. Um, 
I was listening to the New Heights podcast uh, the other day, the Kelsey Brothers, and Jason Kelsey said something about uh, they were recapping. It might have been like after week one or after week two, and Kelsey was talking about like a, a play that they'd messed up, and he talked about you know one guy's like being misaligned, one guy on the defense being misaligned, and he said you know if you're listening to this, that might not sound like a lot, but like that one guy being misaligned, like it blows up the whole play, right? It ruins everything for the team because everything is all, all about the spacing has to be exactly correct, right? That that type of thinking, that like that type of stuff that is involved in every NFL play is why, in my mind, the more people rely on Sims, the more edge we have because NFL is chaos. It is it is chaos theory uh, in a nutshell. In that, you know, we talked about this in one of the like the week two Winter Circle podcast that chaos theory that you know it's it's um, typified by it's it, like the example that is used is the butterfly effect and and people then think that that means like, okay, chaos theory means that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Africa, it can cause a, a tsunami and wherever, right? But, which isn't really the crux of chaos theory. That's an example used to say like things as little as a butterfly flapping its wings literally can have an effect on like the macro weather. And, but that's one butterfly, right? And there's, there's, millions or billions, whatever, but the number of butterflies, right? And there, so it's like the number of things that go into affecting the weather, it's not chaos. It is all still cause and effect, but it is so far beyond our ability to compute it that it is essentially chaos, right? It is to our minds chaos. It is impossible for us to account for all of the things that go into like long range weather. Um, and so an NFL game is the same way. Like there are so many tiny things on every single play. And then one play can entirely change the direction of a game. So this is not to dump on, on Sims, right? I think that, that Sims have their place. I think that's probably the sharpest way to build out projections, but it's to say that generally speaking, projections are not the way to win in NFL DFS. And as the Sims get sharper, people become even more trusting of them and more reliant on them. And we gain even more of an edge by understanding that the NFL is chaos, that the NFL is, you know, say there's 130 plays in a game, there are 130 seasons in a game. And any one of those seasons can dramatically change the way the rest of the game plays out. Because if, if there's a turnover inside the 10 and the other two, this team takes a two score lead or three score lead because of this turnover inside their, the team's own 10, right? Or Kirk Cousins throws that pick six last week. And that like the, the whole shape of the game changes based on that one play sometimes. And the, the, shape of that play changes based on one minor component. Uh, this podcast has gone on way longer than I intended for it to. And hopefully you don't mind the, the extra time, but, um, it's just recognizing like the edge is there and you have to find your best way to access that edge. Uh, the, the, this age of Sims to me is like, this is like a boon to the OWS family. It's, it's, a, it's like the greatest opportunity for us to make money. The, the cool thing is I don't think it's going away, right? The more analytical and, and computer driven things get, the more people are going to believe that that is just inherently 
the best way, and uh, we can continue uh, you know, outmaneuvering them as a result of that. So uh, with that, I will get out of here. Uh, thank you for hanging in. Thanks for being here and, and listening to this podcast, as always. Uh, I will see you on OWS throughout the week, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards in week five. 